Good evening. Good evening and uh, welcome. Um, welcome to uh, a very important topic of conversation. I don't know how many of you have seen this book yet, the, the reason we're here. Can, can you all read the main title, the first two words at the top? Depending on which of those words you emphasize, you get a slightly different outcome. You get an emphasis on justice or you get an emphasis on giving. Okay. And that is my job of having introduced the topic of this conversation. So what I'll focus on instead is introducing uh, the person on my left. Um, Rob Reish, and we should all make a mental note, pronounced Reish, um, is one of three people with that name. In uh, the one, Bay Area. In the Bay Area. One of whom is a former Secretary of State. Labour, beg your pardon, uh, and the other of whom is a very distinguished accordionist, uh, and they pronounce their names differently. So Rob Reish, on my left, Professor of Political Science at Stanford, and the foremost thinker on this extraordinary asset class that we call philanthropy. Okay? The figures are disputed, but somewhere between one and possibly three trillion dollars sit in that asset class called philanthropy and are dispersed without a whole lot of accountability, without a whole lot of science, and some argue without a whole lot of legitimacy. This is an area of such consequence that it deserves real scholarship. And Rob is not only in my view, but in the view of most, the foremost scholar of this extraordinarily interesting phenomenon. So we're very privileged at the LSE to have him here this evening to discuss, do I give it away by, by, by emphasizing one word or the other? Um, his new book. Um, I'm enough of a former publisher to say you're not allowed to leave the building okay, without at least a promise to read the book, even if you haven't made a philanthropic commitment to buying it. Rob. Welcome. Thank you very much. All right. Is it all right if I stand up? I can see you all better. Well, thank you to, to Stefan, to the Marshall Institute, and to LSE for hosting me here. Uh, the book is officially published this coming Tuesday, so this is actually the first uh, public talk I'm giving on the book. It's a great pleasure to do so, and for the generous introduction as well. Uh, I want to begin by telling you three stories uh, all about philanthropy, two of them quite short, one a, a bit longer. They're all drawn from the book, and they all have something to do with the history of philanthropy. The first story, apropos uh, my visit uh, here to London, to, to uh, England, has to do with John Stuart Mill and the idea of perpetuity as the time horizon for the operation of foundations. Um, I'm a political philosopher by training, and so I come to this book, uh, come to the topic trying to understand the relationship between philanthropy and democracy, setting philanthropy within the political dynamic of a larger social system, a democratic social system. Um, Mill, of course, wrote a great deal about politics, and he, in fact, wrote several essays about foundations over the course of 30 years in the mid-1800s. He noted in the mid-1800s the exceedingly multifarious purposes for which foundations have been created in many different countries, 
Schools, hospitals, orphanages, almshouses, monasteries, universities, corporations local and national in scope, funded by money, sometimes funded by real estate, all have been part of a long-standing tradition of foundations that direct what once had been private assets of an individual to some public purpose, quite frequently in perpetuity. And Mill asks, should it ever be permitted for a government to interfere with the purpose established by a donor or to appropriate the assets in a foundation? And his answer is immediate and, I should say, quite blunt. He finds it, quote, so obvious that he can scarcely conceive how any earnest inquirer could think otherwise. Mill asserts that the founders, the founders' intentions in establishing endowment should be legally protected only for his lifetime and perhaps at most for a short duration thereafter. No foundation, Mill thought, should have its purpose fixed forever. I'll skip for the moment the substance of the argument and instead quote some of his characteristically purple prose, his rhetorically inflamed uh, conclusion. He writes, quote, There is no fact in history which posterity will find it more difficult to understand than that the idea of perpetuity and that of any of the contrivances of man should have been coupled together in any sane mind. That it has been believed, nay, clung to as a sacred truth and has formed part of the creed of whole nations that a signification of the will of a man ages ago could impose upon all of mankind now and forever the obligation of obeying him, unquote. To put it in a slightly different way, why should we allow through law the preferences of a dead person to constrain those of a current generation? Why should the dead hand of a donor reach out through the grave to strangle what it is that current generations might wish to do? Story number two, someone who is in the news these days, George Soros, and the story, a story about the creation of some of his philanthropic entities known as the Open Society Institute. So there's a wonderful book from 2002 by an investigative journalist named Mark Dowie. The book is called American Foundations. And he, in this book, relates the story of the early days of the creation of Soros' Open Society Institute, where upon setting up the foundation, he, he hired a professional staff, gathered them together to try to decide, as is typical, what the causes or program areas of the institute would be. And before then going public, they had a final meeting to decide what the causes of the institute would be. And Dowie, the journalist, reports the following. There was a disagreement at the end of the day between the staff and some other people, uh, Soros included, about exactly what the final list of priorities ought to be. And Soros was alleged to have pounded his fist on the table and said, well, this is my money. At the end of the day, we're going to do it my way. At which point, Dowie reports that a junior staff member interjected that, excuse me, Mr. Soros, roughly half the money in this foundation is not yours, but the public's, explaining, quote, if you hadn't placed that money into this institute, about half of it would currently be in the U.S. Treasury, unquote. Dowie also reports that next week that person was no longer employed. <laughs> now, the lesson I take it of this story is that foundations are not, contrary to ordinary opinion, conventional wisdom, the simple product of the liberty of individuals to give their money away. Foundations, and philanthropy more generally, are generously tax-subsidized. 
Strictly speaking, foundations represent the product of our collective decision to subsidize the exercise of an individual's liberty. In the United States, charitable giving costs the U.S. Treasury roughly $50 billion every year in foregone taxation. Third story, a bit lengthier here. This one's about John D. Rockefeller. This is a story that opens the book. It's a story about how to understand the exercise of a philanthropist as an exercise of power, and in particular, a plutocratic power. In 1909, John D. Rockefeller set aside, roughly speaking, $50 million dollars In 2018, inflation-adjusted dollars, that's about $1.3 billion from his company, Standard Oil, for the creation of what he wished to call the Rockefeller Foundation, and he appointed three trustees, his son, his son-in-law, and a man named Frederick Gates, his main advisor. He planned to transfer a further $50 million to the endowment a few years later. And, interestingly for the time, Rockefeller and his advisors sought approval from Congress, U.S. Congress, um, the passage of a bill that would legally incorporate the Rockefeller Foundation and sanction its grand mission with its grand assets. The attempt was to get the U.S. Congress to give a sort of legal permission for a foundation of unprecedented size and scope, an open-ended purpose, a local, national, and international scope of giving and activity. And Gates... Frederick Gates here, not Bill Gates, and one of history's nice ironies. Frederick Gates was well aware in advising Rockefeller that the significance of the foundation um, posed for democracy writ large. The foundation would be so large, Gates wrote to Rockefeller, that, quote, its administration would be, and indeed should be, a matter of public concern, public inquiry, and public criticism, unquote. Now, contrast this today with the kind of public perception that, for the most part, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, and perhaps Jeff Bezos receives. They're met almost uniformly with gratitude rather than inquiry and criticism. Bill Gates and Bono were Time Magazine's Men of the Year at one point, not for Gates's Microsoft technology company or for Bono's rock group, but for their philanthropy. This was emphatically not Rockefeller's experience. I'll quote a few of the things that were said in the early 1900s when Rockefeller proposed to create the foundation. Some people were worried about the source of Rockefeller's wealth, the monopolistic business practices of Standard Oil and its labor union-busting practices. The former U.S. President, Theodore Roosevelt, said, quote, There is no amount of charity in spending such a fortune that can compensate in any way for the misconduct in acquiring that fortune. Unquote. The sitting U.S. President, William Taft, called on Congress to oppose the creation of the foundation, describing the effort, quote, as nothing less than a bill to incorporate Mr. Rockefeller himself. Unquote. The leader of the American Federation of Labor, Samuel Gompers, said, quote, The one thing that the world would gratefully accept from Mr. Rockefeller would be the establishment of a great endowment of research and education to help other people see in time how they can keep from becoming like him. Unquote. Other people set aside the manner in which Rockefeller's fortune had been earned, and focused instead upon the entity that he proposed to create, this seemingly limitless foundation. 
Testifying before Congress in 1912, Reverend John's, John Haynes Holmes, who was a well-known Unitarian minister, one of the founding board members of the American Civil Liberties Union, said, quote, I take it for granted that the men who are now directing these foundations, for example, the men who represent the Rockefeller Foundation, are men of wisdom, they are men of insight, they are men of vision, and they're animated by the very best motives. However, my standpoint here is the whole spirit of democracy. And from this standpoint, it seems to me that this foundation, its very character, is repugnant to the whole idea of a democratic society, unquote. A sitting U.S. Senator, Frank Walsh from Missouri, went further. He opposed not merely the creation of Rockefeller's foundation, but every large foundation. Writing in 1915, Walsh wrote, My object here is to state as clearly and as briefly as possible that the philanthropic trusts known as foundations are a menace to the welfare of society. Unquote. Now, these are the sort of words that we almost never hear today. The idea that the efforts of big philanthropists might be injurious to democracy itself. And the reason behind them should not come all that much as a surprise, I would suggest, even though it's uncommon to hear such views expressed today. The reason is simple. The efforts of big donors, when put into the legal entity of a foundation, are virtually definitionally the product of the expression of the voices of the very wealthy. The attempt to convert private assets into some form of public influence. Big foundations represent a plutocratic element in a democratic society. And they're troubling as a result because they're considered in that respect a deeply and fundamentally anti-democratic institution, the foundation itself. It's the legal codification and promotion of plutocratic voices in a democratic setting. An entity in general that undermines political equality, converts private wealth into a donor's preferred public outcomes, can exist in perpetuity, and that is basically unaccountable except to a hand-picked assembly of the initial donor's trustees. All right, end of my three stories. I've given you already a bit of a flavor of the book, but the reason I share these stories with you tonight is to call attention to the overarching aspiration of the book I've written, which is to focus our attention and to train our minds on the laws and the social norms that structure and give shape to philanthropy. Philanthropy is a time immemorial activity. Charitable giving and big philanthropic activity has always been present in any human society. But it is laws and social norms that shape it and make it have a different flavor, a different dimension in different societies. Contemporary philanthropy in democratic societies, for example, is embedded within a set of legal rules that structure it and encourage it. Whether, when, to whom, and how much people give is partly a product of the laws that govern, say, the creation of a nonprofit foundation, a nonprofit organization, a charitable trust, a private or a community foundation, that spell out the rules about the circumstances in which these may operate, that set up special tax advantages for philanthropic and nonprofit organizations, that permit tax exemptions for individuals to donate to them, and corporate exemptions for donations as well that enforce the donation of property as well as money, that enforce the intent of the donor beyond the life of the donor, that create philanthropic projects and entities that can exist in principle and perpetuity. Why might a democratic society wish to create such laws to stimulate and support social norms that allow the role of a plutocrat to be expressed and given shape and form in a democratic setting? Well. The book I've written is an attempt to create what I would call a political philosophy or a political theory of philanthropy, 
to understand the essential political dimension of what seems like the private act of giving. Now, for those of you who are familiar with a lot of contemporary practices in philanthropy and might even be familiar with some of the work of philosophers who write about philanthropy, you've probably read a bit about what often is called effective altruism or the idea that the role of a philosopher, insofar as there's something interesting to be said about philanthropy, is to try to provide moral guidance to a donor to maximize the good that a person can do with his or her dollars, time, perhaps even body parts. And that is an important role that philosophers can play. But what I wish to do is shift attention away from the moral dimensions of philanthropy to the political dimensions that require us to attend to these structures, these laws, these frameworks that help give shape to philanthropy. Um, So the book goes through both the phenomenon of ordinary charitable giving, the kind of small donations that you or I likely make any year, and their aggregation and their distributional consequence in a democratic setting, and it examines big philanthropy, the role of foundations, and the ways in which we give great deference to the preferences of big donors. I'll focus in these last couple minutes of this presentation on the role of big philanthropy, Much of the book is organized in a way to provide a lot of suspicion that one could ever reconcile the presence of these plutocratic voices in a democratic setting. And to give some flavor to that, one might begin to just get a sense of it by considering the following. Um, I consider, as I think anyone should as a matter of common sense, the creation of a large foundation such as the Rockefeller Foundation, the Gates Foundation, the Welcome Trust, Richard Branson and his array of philanthropic activities as a way to exercise a certain amount of power in society. As I said before, it's virtually definitional of philanthropy that it represents the attempt to take one's private assets and direct them to some public purpose, which is to say to exercise power. In a democratic setting, it seems to me commonsensical also then to say that philanthropy deserves as an exercise of power our scrutiny rather than our gratitude. And more than anything else, what I wish to do with this book is to shift what is frequently the commonplace assumption, especially in the US, that what Bill Gates deserves over and above anything else is gratitude for his decision to give money away rather than to purchase a Caribbean island, another boat, an airplane, etc. Is it the case, sometimes people think, that private giving is always better than private consumption. I want to wipe that assumption away. There may indeed be cases where private consumption is to be preferred over the exercise of plutocratic power in a democratic setting. Why is that the case? Let's start with the Gates Foundation. It's the easiest example to use. So many people here are familiar with its activities, both globally and domestically. Um, Bill Gates has a preferred set of education policies in the United States for public schooling. And he tries to champion those policy efforts by giving money away to both nonprofit organizations and, in certain cases, to public schools themselves. And um, Bill Gates is, unlike anyone who stands for elected office, um, fundamentally unaccountable for those education policy preferences. As one of the critics of Gates says in the US, education critics, that Bill Gates serves as the nation's unelected school superintendent. If you disapprove of Gates' preferred education policies, What are your recourses? 
You could write a letter to the editor. There's no one to unelect. The trustees of the Gates Foundation are Bill Gates, Melinda Gates, Bill Gates Sr., and Warren Buffett. Um, there's no competitors for foundations, whereas in the ordinary marketplace, Microsoft had to compete with any other entity that tried to either um, create a better product or underprice what it is that Microsoft had to offer. In the philanthropic marketplace, there's no one trying to put the Gates Foundation out of business. To the contrary, everyone is in a mode of supplication to the Gates Foundation to get some of the money that they have. So foundations are fundamentally unaccountable. No electoral accountability and no marketplace accountability. They're very frequently not transparent. Now, although the Gates Foundation and many other large foundations do publish their grant-making strategies, the kinds of gifts they give every year to different nonprofits, there are roughly speaking 100,000 private foundations in the United States today. More than 90% of them have no website. There's no publicly available information that if you wished to apply for a grant from the foundation, you would have no mechanism to learn anything about it. The only transparency requirements come from an annual tax form that has to be filled out and filed with the IRS. So they're unaccountable. They're not especially transparent. They're donor-directed, of course. Bill Gates gets to do what he wants to do in the foundation in a way that no one else gets to have any say in. And they're, in principle, legally set up to exist in perpetuity. And finally, they're generously tax-advantaged. So to summarize what is meant to be the frontal criticism of big philanthropy, big philanthropy is an exercise of power that's unaccountable, non-transparent, donor-directed, by default perpetual, generously tax-advantaged. It's a plutocratic, plutocratic exercise of power in a democratic society. And what was the good part again? The end of the book tries to mount a partial redemption of the role that philanthropy can and should play I won't give it here. I think it will come out in some of the conversation I'll have with Stefan. But I'll mention that the attitude I have is not to begin to get into the mind of Bill Gates and orient him or any other donor to a more democratic or civic spirit. The attitude in the book is as a political philosopher to orient our attention to the public policies and the social norms that I think should aim to domesticate our plutocrats in order to serve rather than subvert democratic purposes. And if we can get the appropriate domestication of a plutocratic voice to work on behalf of democratic ideals and to fit within democratic governance, there might be a salutary role for big philanthropy to play in a democratic society. So with that, let me thank you very much for your attention, and I'll turn the floor over back to Stefan. Thank you, Rob. I mean, we love you not least because when you say you're going to talk for 20 minutes, you talk for 20 minutes, um, which is reason enough for me to love you. Um, I, I'm going I'm to ask Rob uh, a few questions, as it, uh, which I think uh, on your behalf, but, but while I'm doing that and while we're in conversation, I want you to start thinking about the questions you want to ask because the majority of the remaining time we'll, we will give over to you. Um, when you come to ask your question, I will point to those whose hands are up. Um, tell, us, tell us who you are uh, and try, if at all possible, to frame your question as a question because it will give Rob more purchase on how to answer it. Um, so, so, Rob, um, let, let's talk about codependency. Um, uh, I understand the argument that this is the, the, the philanthropy is the corollary of inequality. Right. That this is a, a very large amount of capital that is unaccountable. I understand that 
we subsidise it to a significant extent and that it's only weakly redistributive, if at all. Right. But there must be an answer to the lay question. Surely, even discounting for all of those things, funding for good projects, whoever is defining them, is better than not funding for good projects. So there might be, as it were, a kind of minimum efficiency um, uh, justification. Mm -hmm. I partly agree, but the spirit of the book is at least to provide a kind of framework in which to begin to resist even that, which I know might sound in certain respects surprising, because, of course, who could be opposed to the efficient production of good things, as you describe them? And the resistance I have to accepting that on its face is to say that it makes a difference from a standpoint of understanding the political dynamic whether or not the efficient production of those good things comes through our collective activity as citizens, one amongst all, or as donors situated where our private discretion allows us to sprinkle these good benefits on people at our own will and, and for the time period at which we feel like doing so. There has to be some benefit to the collective project of exercising our agency, not as donors, not as private individuals providing philanthropic benefits, but as citizens, one amongst all. Again, if I were attempting to provide a kind of rhetorically forceful presentation of this idea, I sometimes think that in the U.S., we, we exist in a moment in which the wealthiest people who have you know, uh, amassed mountainous fortunes in the marketplace do everything in their power to reduce their taxation to zero legally. And having withdrawn from the public purse, as it were, as much as possible, where their control over the expenditures of the Treasury is just as a citizen, in principle, they then announce that because of the dysfunction of government and the inefficiencies that are involved in the public provision of certain goods, that they wish now to create a private entity, a foundation, for which they'll take a further tax advantage, and then at their discretion alone, distribute a bunch of public benefits, and for which they ask the rest of the citizens to bend over in gratitude for them for that series of actions. That so diminishes the civic role, the democratic collective participation, that while of course I would agree that if we can find a mechanism to produce objectively good things, we can um, provide people with food so that they don't starve, um, we should do that because suffering is indeed an objectively bad thing and ought to be eliminated or alleviated. But we should also attend to the interplay, the dynamic between the philanthropic provision and the collective provision as citizens, because those two things are connected. So can, could you imagine, I mean, if you, so, so the thing that obviously upsets you in this system is, is essentially about power and, and agency and accountability. Could you imagine a system in which the same tax benefits, the same, as it were, plutocratic instinct were mediated by some intermediary exchange or market or system which took out of this any degree of agency? Uh, well, some of that might come... The answer is yes, I can. In fact, that's in certain respects the ambition of the book is to spell out the kinds of policies that might indeed effectuate that type of mediation. Um, with the right framework of policy, we can, as I described before, domesticate plutocrats in order to serve democratic ideals or democratic governance. And among the things that might be appropriate, for example, I agree with John Stuart Mill that perpetuity is an awfully long time horizon. 
Um, we should not have laws that allow for the dead hand of a donor to impose itself on every future generation that is to come. And, and notice that that's not a matter of you know, nature, that such things exist, perpetuity exists. This is a matter of ordinary uh, legal creation, public policy making. So we could constrain the lifetime of any philanthropic entity to 50 years after the death of a donor. Um, we could do something that changes the tax advantages or the tax benefits insofar as they exist. They might be conditioned on serving what's democratically enhancing rather than what's democratically undermining. And that's the spirit of the end of the book. So I, I, don't, I don't want you who haven't yet read the book um, to, to um, uh, think that there are no defenses of the philanthropic right. enterprise here. So, there, and, and forgive me if I, if I um, oversimplify your argument, but uh, my reading suggests that there are, two, there are two things that you defend about what philanthropy does that's positive. One is what you call plurality, mm-hmm. and the other is what you call discovery. Okay. And very simply put, I think, although I'm going to ask you to, to, to tell me if I've got this right, Plurality is that more good things exist, and discovery is, the, is a, an experimental exercise. It, it flushes out some stuff that works and some stuff that doesn't work. That's right. Yeah. Well, you're exactly right to put those on the table. So there's something defensible about the aspiration of ordinary charitable giving serving the um, purpose of creating a pluralism within a diverse civil society. And for big philanthropy the role of foundations or extraordinarily wealthy people undertaking what I call a certain type of experimentalist or um, I- innovation-seeking uh, exercise that's extra-governmental. But to explain why I think those things are important, it helps to situate this again within the basic framework that I think is important to take, which is to understand what it is that charity, ordinary charitable giving that you and I do, and big philanthropy that wealthy people do, how that differs from what happens in the marketplace and what happens in public institutions themselves. And the key there is to see that the very unaccountability of big philanthropy and the kind of things that we all do with our ordinary charitable giving could serve different aims or ends that are not really compatible with democracy, but in fact may be constitutive of it. Here's what I have in mind. One thing that is a nice contrast between the effective altruists of the world and the way that I see ordinary charitable giving is the effective altruist wants to harness all of our giving in small and large amounts to maximally increase human welfare wherever it happens to um, be able to be increased. Sorry to interrupt. Can I just check? Does it, is everyone familiar with effective altruism as a movement, as a concept? Very few. mostly nodding? Because yeah. if not, it might be worth yeah. okay. giving, giving a sentence or two on, on what it is that they, they, they mean. The effective altruist thinks as an investor does in the marketplace, that the goal of your investment advisor, or if you don't have one, you yourself, when you, you try to um, get a return on your investment, is indeed to maximize the return on your investment. You're seeking to generate as much return as you can. And the idea is to take that concept of maximal return on investment and now to apply it in the charitable world. When you make a charitable donation, the fact that your friend on Facebook is running in the leukemia you know, half marathon and you never bother to inquire about how effective this particular organization is and you only think you're doing this because your friend asked you to do it and that's reason enough. But then most of your charitable giving turns out to be driven by what your friends ask you to do or what mailer came to your home on a certain day when you might have thought it's time to give some charity. The effective altruist says, stop doing that. 
Try to maximize the return on your charitable donation. What are we trying to maximize? Human welfare. So the effective altruist says, here are a number of organizations, nonprofit organizations in the world, that have an enormous evidentiary base of taking a donation and transforming it into a boost in human welfare. And that's what a charitable donor ought to do. Stop with your self-involved, heart-rending passion stories about charity and instead get busy using your head in the same way you would as an investor. I've overstated it perhaps just a mild bit, but Thank that's you. the basic spirit. Not, not everyone was nodding, so I yeah. just wanted to make sure yeah. that, that, that people knew what, what, what you were referring to. And I, I've said I overstated it, but in certain respects I've understated it because a, a, an, um, a full-blown effective altruist would go further and say that the orientation to maximize the good that you can do in the world through your charitable donations extends not just to your wallet, but to your time. You should choose a profession that's maximally beneficial to the world in terms of human welfare, and ultimately, in certain extreme cases, to the luxury kidney that you're all carrying around, that if you were to donate it in a medical procedure that's actually not especially risky, you would almost certainly extend the life of someone who's in need of a kidney. So the effective altruist goes, as it were, all the way to claim that when we attempt to maximize the good that we can do in the world, it has claim on our money, on our time, and even, to certain respects, uh, our body. So um, if you were motivated as, as an effective altruist to think about ordinary charitable giving, you would think that the goal or the value you were meant to be serving was in certain respects distributive justice or improving outcomes in the world so that the vast inequalities in suffering or life expectancy that we see would be partially remedied. By contrast, what I wish to say is that the, the primary goal should be pluralism. And what's valuable about ordinary charitable giving is it represents or could represent with the right policy structure um, the creation of a flourishing and diverse civil society or, or associational life in which your championing of the opera house and your hope for the animal shelter and your provision for a cancer charity and your hope to fund um, scholarship programs and someone else's to do global development elsewhere. All of us casting our various preferences, partly through our dollars, partly through all of our own tier work, into a diverse, not especially rationalized, but a contestatory civil society, that itself is a precondition or a necessary element of a flourishing democracy because social trust and capital is built in civil society. And what's important is that all of us play a role in it. So I, in fact, want to push away the distributive justice aim on ordinary charitable giving and harness ordinary charitable giving to pluralism. Okay. Two, two final questions from me. So start thinking about your questions. On this, as it were, alternative view, um, uh, is it likely that net giving would go up or down? And in what sense are governments incentivized in the other direction? Yeah. Since there is this continuous dance as between state provision and philanthropic substitution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, these are exactly the kinds of social, scientific, or empirical questions that I would wish there to be much more scholarship on. So I think there is an interesting question about the crowding in or crowding out effect of 
charitable donations that might displace what otherwise could be publicly financed things, or perhaps um, a mutually reinforcing effect in which the partial public funding and partial private funding of something turns out to produce more of it than what we'd have if we relied on either one alone. Um, the aspiration, of course, would, is, um, in my view, to help create this pluralistic associational life. And here, getting into some of the, the kind of wonkery of tax law, um, much depends on exactly how the policy instrument is created. One of the things that's completely unjustifiable, unjustifiable about the U.S. law is that the mechanism for stimulating charitable donations is the tax deduction. So the wealthier you are, the greater the subsidy rate of your giving, which is to say if uh, Leif Winar makes a $1,000 donation to a charity, I make a $1,000 donation to a charity. If Leif is much richer than I am and I'm taxed at a lower rate because he's taxed at a higher rate with a system of progressive taxation, let's say he's taxed at a 40% rate, his $1,000 donation costs him $600, $400 is foregone in his tax bill, if I'm taxed at the 20% rate, my $1,000 donation costs me $800, $200 is foregone. The wealthier you are in the U.S., the greater the subsidy for your charitable giving, even if the identical amount is given to the identical organization. That's unjustifiable. So I know just, I, I, I asked you a double question, which is never fair, but the, but the one you didn't answer directly was... Assume we have this pluralistic, associative, yeah. contested, less ego-defined right. system, yeah. okay, some kind of veil. Um, do donations net go up or down? I don't know. No, I don't know. But what, 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 what do you have an intuition? Because my intuition is down. Your intuition is down. Um, yeah, uh, I guess I don't have an intuition. I think what's relevant are the policy mechanisms... And um, if it's the case that the policy mechanism is meant to give an equal voice to all of us rather than a systematically greater voice to the wealthy, I mean, this is one of the perversities of of philanthropy when you think about the policy structure. It's obvious that wealthy wealthy people have the potential to exercise a charitable or philanthropic voice more than poor people. Why? Because they have, relatively speaking, more money to give away. But why would you lop on top of that relative advantage a public policy mechanism that amplifies the existing plutocratic bias in the charitable sector itself. That's what the American law currently does. So my aspiration would be to think that we could craft public policies in the way that might indeed tick the total amount of giving up. But um, the objective for me is not maximize total giving. The objective is allow people to express themselves pluralistically in the aggregate within civil society. Right, the time has come. Um, there are, I think, two microphones in the room with, with um, very kind LSE stewards. Um, so I'm going to go first. Where am I going to go first? Right there in the front row. Yeah, there. Hello, thank you very much. I'm Chris. I'm a student here at LSE. Um, I heard that recently... Um, Universal Basic Income um, pilot was launched in Kenya, funded by um, a a foundation, um, largely on um, funds from Silicon Valley. And I wonder um, what uh, these private companies or or foundations' um, interest in uh, international social policy says about 
uh, the state of unequal development and the limitations of the nation state? That's a big question, isn't it? Um, there are also philanthropically funded Silicon Valley philanthropy funded universal basic income experiments going on just outside the Bay Area in Stockton, California. So they're, not, they're happening not only overseas but also domestically. And it's no secret that the kind of um, at the moment, hot policy preference amongst the grand technological moguls of the day, so many of them located in Silicon Valley, whose automated technologies might well displace future workers, they see a policy solution that involves the possibility of universal basic income. Um, but your question perhaps gives me a chance to say something about the role that big philanthropy can play, or given the right setting. And um, I describe it as what philanthropy is able to do, unlike the marketplace and unlike the public institutions of the state, which in a democracy have various forms of electoral accountability, short time horizons for our elected leaders to show results from public spending, and in the marketplace competing pressures as well as investor short time horizons. So philanthropists have the distinctive privilege, partly in virtue of their unaccountability, to take long time horizon innovations or experiments um, the phrase I use in the book is that f foundations can represent, or big philanthropy can represent, an extra-governmental mechanism of innovation or discovery, which, if proven successful through ordinary social scientific or means or an evidentiary base, can be presented for, to use the words of a you know, typical Silicon Valley person, scaled up to serve everybody, not through philanthropic funds, but typically through the public purse. And in that respect, um, the appropriate posture of a philanthropist is to sort of be humble with respect to the ultimate scaling mechanism of all, which is the state. Um, so that's to come back around to think that insofar as universal basic income might or might not be a good idea, it's doubtful that any philanthropist currently doing it in Kenya thinks to himself or herself, well, if this works, I will happily fund this for as many citizens as possible forever, Rather, there ought to be the hope that it's eventually offloaded to a well-functioning government, presumably, that would then provide it generally for all. And if that's the case, one has to recognize the political dimension of the philanthropic undertaking and the appropriate humble posture where philanthropic experiments are auditioning for the stamp of democratic approval rather than announcing oneself as the smarter sector aiming to bypass the inefficient, administrative, bureaucratic state. Well put. Yes. Uh, hi, I'm Parastu, uh, member of public. What do you, how do you see the uh, situation of philanthropy in a non-democratic society? Yeah, how do I see the situation of philanthropy in a non-democratic society? Well, the short answer is I haven't analyzed that or examined that in this book. And uh, I know some about it, but not much. So I would refer to some of the work of um, colleagues. One of the most familiar things I see at, the, at this center at Stanford, where many scholars do work, um, the Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society, is every year there are 20 dissertations being written on philanthropy in China in which 19 out of the 20 basically have the following punchline. The individual efforts of philanthropists are co-opted by the authoritarian state to reinforce its own political power against the interests of a 
oppositional or resistance-based civil society. And my suspicion is that authoritarian regimes, recognizing that philanthropy represents a rival source of power, will do what they can to co-opt that, that power whenever possible. Think of George Soros now in Hungary. Yes. I'm not favoring people who sit next to each other. I will get around. Hi, uh, I'm Ramin. I'm coming from the uh, John Stuart Mills University, UCL. Wonderful. I wanted to uh, know your view about the influence of philanthropy on the world of ideas, marketplaces. We already seen the trends of, you know, people these philanthropies doing their own talks, you know, Google talks, TED talks, you know. So, what's your uh, assessment of that? Yeah. I have a long answer to it. I'll give you the short version. Um, In certain respects, philanthropy has always funded ideas. And part of the task is to try to insulate the people who are doing the idea creation from the power of the donor. Um, For example, I work at one of the most philanthropically, lavishly funded universities in the world. It's got something like $25 billion in the endowment. And here I am showing up, biting the very hand that feeds me which is a fair description of the talk you've just heard. Um, The institutional design of the university is to give me tenure, if I've earned it through these ordinary means, in which case the the development office at Stanford has no power over me, and I can accept philanthropic money to write the book that I have, which um, I thank a few foundations in the acknowledgments, which is an irony. Um, So, the answer is, when donors try to attach ever more strings to the gifts that are intended for idea creation, that becomes a way for the donor to reproduce his or her preferred ideological or ideational space. And in fact, we see a lot of that. Um, The book that perhaps is not as well-known here, but is well-known in the U.S. by Jane Mayer, the writer for The New Yorker, called Dark Money. It's a, a sort of history of the Koch brothers and their various efforts um, in politics uh, in the United States, the first third of that book, which almost no one talks about or reads, is subtitled The Weaponization of Philanthropy. And it's the idea of right-wing foundations in the U.S. funding universities, libertarian market, um, uh, neoliberal type of scholarship, and trying to promulgate those ideas then within ordinary think tanks and university settings. Um, Universities have long been funded by philanthropists, so the task is to try to provide as much insulation as possible between the donor and the scholar or the thinker. Though, of course, we've seen kind of reverse weaponization in the demonization on the other side of Tom Steyer or George Soros. That's right. This is not just a right wing. In in recent times. Um, There was, yes, and then I come in to you. Here in the second row. Thanks. My name is Bernadette, and um, I studied here a long time ago at the LSE. Um, In all of this, the thing that really not bothers me, but I'm just wondering, where does God come in all of this? Do you mention him at all in your book? Because we think of Spinoza and Hume and all the theological arguments, and it just seems to be a bit missing. Yeah, uh, there's no extended discussion of, of religion, but I do mention, and in fact discuss a bit, that 
one of the longest-standing traditions of philanthropy is to understand it as a religious obligation, um, a tithe, or, or whatever the case may be. And um, uh, that helps fill in some of the motive for a giver. And it would be curious, in the United States, giving to your church, your synagogue, your mosque, is understood as exactly the same type of charity as giving to a university, a, a soup kitchen, an art museum. Um, and, you know, apropos the effective altruist, it would be so, so odd to think to oneself um, as a religiously motivated donor, I had to do a comparative assessment of the effectiveness of each church in town in order that my donation might go to the one that best accelerates me to heaven or provides me with spiritual virtue or whatever the case may be. Um, that's where, again, the effective altruist misses out on rival kinds of value. So the book doesn't provide an extended discussion, except insofar as it acknowledges these deep historical roots of religiously motivated giving. Thanks very much. My name is Hassan Damaluji. I'm the Deputy Director of Global Policy and Advocacy at the Gates Foundation. Wonderful. Um, <laughs> How's your own accountability going? I, I had a feeling there might be a murmur when I said that. Um, so, look, the Gates Foundation was centre stage, at, certainly at the end of your talk. And I, I, I'll, I'll come to a very specific question. But first, I just wanted to suggest that of all the different examples, it might not be the most appropriate in terms of the specific things that you were beating up on. Mm -hmm. And I understand that you're beating up on the principle that these things can exist. But in okay. terms of choosing examples, just to highlight, and I'm sure you know this, but there is a sunset clause on the gate side. Right. So you want a 50-year endpoint. Actually, after 20 years, yeah. uh, all the money has to be spent. Yeah. So they agree with you on that. Bill Gates has been very, very clear, as of Warren Buffett, that they want taxes in the U.S. to rise. Correct. So they're calling, again, for the same as you, which is to say rich people should pay more. That's right. Um, you know, everything we do is about experimenting. So whilst I do understand the argument, as soon as you're in education, well, you have an education is politics. So I, I take your point. But at the same time, there's no re uh, replacement of government funding. It is about experimenting and trying to see what works. And, I, you know, I, I nevertheless take the point there. Um, and, and, you know, you finish by saying, well, what's the good part? I mean, you know, and you don't like effective altruism, but there are millions of lives that have been saved. And I think it would be remiss not to mention millions of lives saved as the good part. Um, all of that is just to give a little bit of a, 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 a parentheses around your example of the Gates Foundation. My question to you is, you said something very interesting, which is it would be better in a lot of cases, if rather than giving to charity, uh, rich people consumed. And so isn't it the case that actually they wouldn't consume, they just pass it to their kids because most rich people don't consume most of their wealth? But secondly, to the extent that they would be consuming yachts, isn't that a, di a diversion of economic yeah. resources? Sure. Isn't that going to make all the smart people here now work for yacht companies? Doesn't that fall into exactly the same problems? And so I'd love you to just talk to that a little bit because it's fascinating. Absolutely. Good. Well, uh, thanks very much for um, uh, mentioning what you did about the Gates Foundation, all of which, of course, um, I accept, including the most important part at the end, that the Gates Foundation can lay claim, credibly lay claim, to having improved or saved many millions of lives. That, that indeed is no small thing. Um, uh, in fact, insofar as um, I have anything to say specifically about the Gates Foundation, um, 
I try to establish what we briefly mentioned in the exchange here as this discovery rationale, this experimental innovation-stimulating idea, which needs to be then presented to some uh, constituency for scaling and uptake. And um, what little I know about the Gates Foundation suggests to me that they do operate to some extent in that mode. There's a piece of me that also wants to quibble with the kind of technocratic orientation, the quintessential engineer who wants to spray utility on people around the world rather than engage their agency. But we can leave that aside for the moment. Um, I'd say then at the end about private consumption as opposed to charitable giving. I'll give an example close to home at the risk of inflaming some of my colleagues uh, back at Stanford. Um, There's a journalist who often writes about the Gates Foundation who's an effective altruist uh, named Dylan Matthews uh, for Vox.com. Anytime someone makes a multi-hundred million dollar gift to a well-endowed university like Stanford, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, he writes an article with the headline, For the love of God, people, stop giving money to Stanford, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. So he described the largest philanthropic gift of 2016, 2014 in the United States was a $400 million gift to Stanford University by Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. Um, He described it as the worst philanthropic gift of 2016, in which he explained that the purpose for the gift, which was to create a set of Knight scholarships modeled after the Rhodes scholarships at Stanford University to hothouse the um, education of a bunch of fantastically well-positioned, high social, you know, um, capital folks, um, with ultimately $600 million, uh, some matching funds. And so Dylan Matthews described this as it would have been actually better for the world. The world would be a better place if instead of giving the $400 million to Stanford, uh, Phil Knight had put the money in his backyard and set it on fire, which would have been an act of private consumption. And of course, the curiosity is, in what possible respect would the world be better off if he had lit $400 million on fire? And the answer is that 30 or 40% of it would have been money that he would have to pay taxes on because it was an act of private consumption. And Dylan Matthews' bet is that $100 million into the treasury with the fractional benefit that that provides for all people exceeds the value to the world of providing scholarships for 60 people a year at Stanford University. Now, you would need a very complicated model to decide that, but you see the surface plausibility of the idea. So if it's the case that what people did with their money is to shelter it in some, you know, Cayman Island or pass it along to their heirs tax-free, that just indicates a set of other public policy problems. But the mere act of private consumption is meant to generate tax revenue, and we should always compare the fractional benefit of a tax revenue to the benefit of a philanthropic donation. And insofar as many of the gifts that we make You and I actually make, because we're not motivated by using our head to maximize the good that we can do, we're motivated by social relationships and friendship maintenance and social status and self-benefit. It's not that hard to imagine worlds in which the fractional benefit of a tax dollar would exceed the good that we do charitably. Okay, we've got some questions queued up. Um, I think right at the back, I can't see... uh, Yes, I can see your hand. And then we're going... Down there, and then, then over there. I can't see you, but I now have. Yes. Um, hi, my name is Bailey, and I'm here on behalf of a charity. And um, thank you for a very interesting talk. 
Um, one of the things that resonated um, was around, in the charity sector, we struggle when there is bad philanthropy or harmful philanthropy because we don't have any means of uh, complaining or, or raise, uh, calling attention to it. Do you think that there's a future in regulation or um, some form of, of creating an accountability mechanism? I know in, in America there is grant advisor for foundations. I don't think there's a comparable mechanism in the UK, um, nor is there one for uh, general philanthropy. Do you think that there's some clout in that idea? Yes. Uh, that is, the, the, as I say, the task of the book is to try to illuminate the kinds of social norms or public policies that might orient the work of philanthropists, sometimes be more accountable, but the, the mechanism, I'd say, is to try to have it fit within democratic ideals and governance rather than um, sit aside it or bypass it. Um, among those mechanisms could involve various forms of peer review. You were describing um, ways in which there's a kind of... Um, like imagine Yelp for foundation program officers so that the, grant, the grantees have this website to um, rate the efforts of their, um, um, their, their donors. Of course, at the end of the day, the donor has the ultimate power, which is to withdraw the possibility of the next gift. So it's a pretty limited kind of accountability. Um, it's the rare grantee that has multiple donors competing to give money to you. Um, that might be the gold standard place to reach where you could then um, minimize the conditions that come with the dollar in order to um, be able to have the autonomy that you might wish. Um, I explore in the book some other possible mechanisms that include, in certain cases, various forms of community governance of foundations, um, conditioning tax benefits on some of these policy mechanisms so that if you really want to have it all to yourself and have donor discretion alone, will do it completely on your own dime then rather than take advantage of various public subsidies. Um, there's no prescription from the philosophical analysis of the exact policy blueprint, but, but I'm, I try to illuminate the spaces in which one might begin to argue in order to bring about some of what you have in mind. <clears throat> Julian Legrand from the uh, colleague of Stephens at Marshall. Um, I'm trying to work out if there's a kind of principle involved here um, or whether you're objecting to the wealthy concentrating power in the way that they concentrate power in the market or in the political world uh, and in the philanthropic world. Yeah. Um, in terms of a principle, um, presumably if there is a principle involved, then presumably it doesn't just apply to the wealthy. Um, presumably when I give money to a beggar or I... Um, give money to a hospice, which I do, quite a bit of money to a hospice, um, then presumably I should be held accountable too in mm -hmm. some way. Right. Um, and I begin to balk at that as to why um, should I be held accountable for, for that form of spending and not, say, held accountable for other forms of spending? Should I be held accountable for all forms of spending? And if so, accountable to who exactly? Yeah, yeah. good. Um, so, uh, as I briefly mentioned before, insofar as there is an orienting principle, the principle is not accountability. Um, the principle for ordinary charitable giving of the sort you just described is, is, is pluralism, and that's the orientation. I could fit that within a, a broader democratic framework. Um, for big philanthropy, the principle is something like um, a kind of expectation that the what ultimately justifies a democratic political organization or a democratic society is its capacity to confront uh, problem-solving tasks in ways that are on balance stable and successful over the course of time. And 
as part of a problem-solving, if you want some labels here to flag the scholarly roots of this, a kind of Deweyan experimentalist democracy. The goal is to try to provide occasional extra-governmental mechanisms of experimentation and innovation so that the democratic constraints of majority rule and a certain type of standing orthodoxy that won't allow million experiments to take place on the public purse get cast into the private sphere partially, but ultimately having to audition for this democratic stamp of approval if the policy is to be adopted and brought to scale for all. So although I've made much hay, as it were, of the relative unaccountability of the big donor, there are certain respects in which the unaccountability turns from virtue, excuse me, turns from vice into virtue because it's the unaccountability that allows the donor to have a long time horizon set of experiments. And although I think there are mechanisms that can increase the relative accountability of big donors and, in fact, of ordinary givers in very modest ways, um, my lodestar principle is not to make all donors, no matter the size, accountable for something with their giving. Hi, um, my name is Christina. Um, so the Charity Commission recently uh, released a report um, similar to the U.S. about who sits on the Board of Trustees. Yeah. And unsurprisingly, it was overwhelmingly men, overwhelmingly people over 60, and overwhelmingly white. And I'm really curious about, and now also those people have uh, access to control over 60 or uh, $3 trillion, as you mentioned. Um, so I'm really curious about the, uh, your thoughts on the intersections of race and gender um, and class power, and um, particularly what kind of policies and mechanisms could be put into place to address this, especially from a racial justice lens. Right. Well, you've well described the case in the U.S. as well. Um, you might as well add to it a, a gender lens. Everyone you just described, is, uh, or many of them, are, I'm sure, are male as well, and there's relatively few uh, female philanthropists with boards of the kind that you were describing. So um, uh, I, I don't have here a prescription to offer other than to want to encourage the sense in which if you're taking an expectation about a legacy of racial injustice, of um, gender injustice, of a variety of forms of structural background conditions that have made it more difficult for people other than white men to assume the mountains of wealth that then allow them to erect themselves as philanthropists, one mechanism to remedy this might be to insist upon a variety of diverse board memberships. And perhaps then you might wish to condition the public subsidies that attach to philanthropy on a certain type of diversity of governance. Um, in the absence of that, you might continue to point out the non-trivial systemic background conditions that tend to produce white men as the donors whose discretion is legally honored. Um, I think about this at, uh, at university settings in the United States in which it's a commonplace, I'm sure it's the case here too, to have buildings named after donors. And as new generations of students have begun to point out the various illicit ways in which certain names that appear on the buildings, have the, the source of the money had been earned, if we have a philanthropic practice of according naming rights to big donors, we should expect to see lots of white dead men adorning the names of buildings. And if there's a rival expectation, not merely among students but others, to diversify these kind of civic monuments in our midst, 
then giving naming rights sits in some tension with that entire project. So um, I only want to basically applaud the spirit of the question and say that one policy kind of mechanism at your disposal would be to condition the various benefits and privileges that attach to philanthropy on the expectation of a new type of diverse governance structure. Hi, my name is Chai. Um, right. So if we do assume that individuals uh, wants to improve society, wants to help out, they basically have two ways, as much as I understand. One is through philanthropy, and the other one is by supporting directly the government, which obviously puts the democratic idea into much more conflict because they have much more power over democracy mm-hmm. in a dangerous way. Therefore... And obviously, democracy, yeah, sorry, uh, philanthropy is not a good uh, solution as you uh, suggest, which basically means the not current way for individuals who want to improve society to help in a non um, dangerous way. Um, so, sorry, my question is does it mean that philanthropy is the one failing democracy, or is it a democratic system, and in particular, the uh, democratic society that is based on capitalist economy that prevents uh, the further development. Mm-hmm. And in which case, um, isn't the suggestion is to uh, push for a more socialist society, which is again problematic, especially considering these resources are coming from uh, mostly from the yeah, capitalist economy, such as the US. Right, good. Uh, Well, you've correctly identified what I think is one of the most important distinctions to make. The kinds of things we can do as individuals to help improve society in which our activity is described as a donor or a giver as opposed to that of a citizen. And the, the connection between those two things is important to point out, meaning that since we all have limited resources and time and money... If we exhaust them in our capacity as a donor, we'll have done nothing as a citizen. Or if we devote them all to our civic activities with the small probability that working as one citizen amongst many, pointing out, as you did, that the wealthy tend to have a disproportionate say as citizens as well, means that the likelihood of success is low as a citizen. So that's partially true, but I think the idea is to recognize that we can be... Uh, find ourselves, as I think we may well be, in this downward spiral, this mutually reinforcing negative dynamic in which, because we view the activity of democratic participation, one amongst many, as fraught with all types of problems and inequalities, we see dysfunction around us all the time, the temptation is to try to do something good and to have some high confidence that we could actually do so by acting as a donor, thereby diminishing one by one as everyone makes a similar calculation, the likelihood that we ever band together as citizens and create something um, that uh, would in fact perhaps wrest the power from those uh, who are wealthy. I'll give you a concrete example of this. One of the small descriptions in in the book involved what I discovered as a parent in Silicon Valley, which is many people believe that the public finance system of the kindergarten and elementary and secondary system is woefully underfunded. And so there have arisen amongst some towns nonprofit organizations whose only purpose, like parent-teacher associations, parent-teacher organizations, is designed to raise money to supplement the existing public school system's inadequate public financing. And the parents who give money 
think that they're doing something civic and noble. They say something like, I could send my kid to private school, but instead I'm giving my own dollars to support the existing public school in town, which the state has woefully underfunded. And as they make the decision one by one, where Palo Alto raises something in the neighborhood of $2,000 each every year privately per student, they make it less likely that they attack the root source of the problem, which is what's going on in Sacramento. And the whole dynamic becomes worsened, especially insofar as the inequality is concerned then. So I haven't addressed what you said about socialism directly. I have only wanted to point out again that uh, when we face this choice of acting as a donor or acting as a citizen, it's tempting to say it's so unlikely that what I do just as one person as a citizen will make any difference, that we want to feel the confidence that what we do as a donor will. And then as all of us begin to make that calculation we collectively disenfranchise ourselves civically and make it all the more likely that the wealthy are able to take the reins of political power on top of it. Hi, I'm Paula. I'm in the Master's in Social Business and Entrepreneurship. I'm here. Ah, Thank you. (laughs) Um, Somewhat connected to this question, but the scenario you pictured seemed to suggest yet another government failure. And we social entrepreneurs are also in the business of tackling government failures. So my question is, how do you think it's possible to rescue government and redeem it from these continuous failures in this actual you know, scenario, that political scenario that we're living in? The important part there was in this actual political scenario we're in. Uh, well, um, in general, I'd say you shouldn't look to a political philosopher to give you activist um, guidance. Uh, we're not especially well-suited, I think, for the task. Uh, other than to say relatively um, commonsensical things about striving for the ideal of political equality, acting in concert with one another as a citizen, building social movements to recapture the essential ideals of a democratic society and not underestimating what it is that a 10-year time horizon can accomplish as opposed to a six-month time horizon if, in fact, there is something in the neighborhood of people power. Civic engagement and civic participation can indeed be powerful. It's one of the standing disappointments, I'm sure, here in the U.K. as well as in the U.S., that the rate of political participation amongst old people is triple that of the youngest generation, And um, it's no surprise when it is that people feel, as it were, disenfranchised or ill-served by government if, in fact, they never show up to contribute at all. Even though I understand why they might make that calculation, it's, in fact, my discipline, political science, which has come up with the rationale of it's irrational to vote because the, um, the marginal value of Um, the time that you have to get to the ballot box um, in in the face of the chance that your actual vote tips the scales one way or another never tells in favor of voting. Um, That's one of the disciplinary um, problems um, that political science has uh, fostered for the, uh, the students at Stanford, at least. I have a colleague who threatens to write a book every year, Why It's Irrational to Vote and Other Lessons from Political Science. Uh, hi, my name's Matt. I'm an entrepreneur in London. Thank you very much for the talk. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't understand something, and you've obviously spent a lot more time thinking about this, so I'm just going to kind of ask. Yeah. Um, it says uh, philanthropy is failing democracy, but 
um, I'm trying to get the distinction between philanthropy and just someone else giving. Uh, let's use the example of Bill Gates because it's easy and everyone kind of understands it. He, he's shown himself to be an extraordinary allocator of capital, which is why he managed to build Microsoft, um, and then has decided to kind of, you know, re redistribute that wealth in a way that he finds useful. And when you spoke about earlier, like effective altruism, that's essentially each individual uh, not being good or having its issues. It was about individuals being able to decide what they think is useful. And yet, when Bill Gates, as an individual, or as a group of, you know, a small group of individuals, all incredibly effective at allocating capital, decided to do what they thought was useful, it was criticised. And it sounded more like what you were against was not philanthropy, um, but was terrible tax incentives that allow very rich people to label what they're doing as philanthropy. Um, and then second to that, if I have understood that correctly, um, is why would we defend or worry about it failing democracy when in the democratic states we've seen incredibly inefficient capital allocation for governments um, and then we've seen individuals privately be very good at managing it. Uh, is it not better to allow them to allocate the capital to issues, including ones that aren't necessarily in the country? Gates, again, uh, distributed a huge amount of capital overseas uh, because America doesn't do that. So he was resolving issues with vaccines that the U.S. wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. Right. Okay, uh, quick response. On the first question, uh, the, uh, there's a distinction to be made, which I didn't make as clearly as I might have, but this is a good opportunity to make it here. There's indeed a criticism to be made of a philanthropist like Bill Gates for announcing himself as an efficient allocator of philanthropic capital, as you described it, and then taking tax advantages for doing it, diminishing the money in the treasury for all people. So um, we can criticize a philanthropist for um, the efforts that they make philanthropically because it's not truly the exercise of their liberty to give their money away. It's the stimulation of their liberty to give their money away publicly subsidized. So you might think, as I was describing over here, that if you have certain democratic goals about diversity of representation, various forms of governance, if you're going to get a public subsidy for a philanthropic activity, then allow the public to have a say in how that philanthropic activity goes. All right, that's position number one. Just number two is even if you wiped all tax advantages off the board, Bill Gates would still be left with a mountain of money, and he would still almost certainly decide to give a lot of it away. That represents an exercise of private power in a democratic setting, which deserves not our gratitude, but our scrutiny. Our criticism, not for the act of doing it, but for the attention that's meant to be paid to it. I haven't said that power is illegitimate. That would be a nonsensical thing to say. We can, we're never going to equalize power for every single person in terms of political participation. But what we can do is resist the impulse to express our gratitude to someone whose plutocratic power is exercised simply in virtue of having exercised it. Tax advantages are no. So if it turns out that Bill Gates does things that subvert or undermine democratic control, if, for example, you think that his preferred education policies undermine the preferred policy positions of democratic elected school boards, which many of his critics actually believe, whether or not he has tax advantages for doing so is neither here nor there. Put it in, a, in, a, in an anecdote I heard from a colleague. I was told, uh, maybe if you're familiar with the Gates Foundation, again, sorry to pick on it, but it's one that many people are familiar with. Um, 
Bill Gates was evidently or allegedly one day exercising on a treadmill, and he happened to be watching a documentary about someone who had come up with a new history curriculum that Gates himself was enamored with, and then directed his program officers in the foundation to begin funding the dissemination of this particular history curriculum without any knowledge necessarily about what the existing history curriculum was. He was only, after 45 minutes in the treadmill, taken with this particular thing. Now, when I exercise in a treadmill, I actually occasionally do have my own ideas about history curricula. I don't have any power to orient the activity of public school systems around it. He does, and that deserves our critical attention, not our mere gratitude. Yeah. Um, so, um, does he have a factual correction? I think we should give you a chance to, to say what it is, yeah. Of course. Um, uh, where's the other microphone? It's there. Can you just pass it forward, just for one second, and then we'll, we'll pass it straight back to you. Again, I, mean, I think Bill Gates is being used here as an allegory, and in yes. that sense it's powerful. Yeah. The actual Bill Gates, that's not a t- I can promise you that's not at all how decisions are made. As someone who takes part in those decisions, it's meticulous. People talk about a document being bill-ready, which means it's ready for him, otherwise you're in trouble. And that means there's a lot of fact and a lot of reasoning. Decisions don't get made because he's on the treadmill. Having said that, <laughs> your point as a general one about yeah. the dangers of philanthropy with Bill Gates as an allegory might be more appropriate. Yeah. Um, can I just add, as we're going to the next questioner as well, uh, in two weeks I'm going to Seattle to do a version of this talk with Jeff Rakes, who used to be the CEO of the Gates Foundation. And I'll go to some length to say that I'm talking to the Gates Foundation allegorically. <laughs> so um, I'm the investment director of a UK foundation. And as it happens, I've spent the whole day with um, sort of the, the annual meeting of UK foundations. Yeah. And they would, to a man and woman, be appalled at the idea that they were somehow subverting democracy by what they were doing. What they're just trying to do is fill in gaps, often in small communities, and that in a sort of unsystematic way. What they would say apart, is their most valuable asset, apart from their money, is their independence. And to, you know, to criticize government, to advance different issues, but you can't be independent if you are accountable. So unaccountability is, a, is an important factor in this plural society. My question, though, really is this. Increasingly, I suspect that effective philanthropy or effective altruism is an oxymoron. We know what effective is. We know what altruism is. But to try and get more bang for your buck in a gift seems rather selfish to me. What do you think about that? Uh, I think it, it's likely a, a um, honest description of human behavior and human intention that in the most altruistically oriented acts, there is a note of self-interest as well, and that can itself waver. If, in fact, economists describe this, as I'm guessing you know, as the warm glow that can come from an act of altruism. So in behaving altruistically, I consume the warmth of my own goodness. And in that respect, I would replace your word, selfish, with self-interested. Hi, my name name is Shira. Um, I am a UCL student doing an MPA at Steep, and I'm also a founding trustee um, of an international development charity. Mm -hmm. My question relates um, more to do with grassroots level charities, because 
um, I understand when you talk about philanthropy and wealth, but what about those charities that are set up because there has been a need identified in the community and the people that are setting up these charities don't necessarily come from a wealthy background, but they have this keen desire to see a change in society where they have the direct knowledge and the direct um, ideas and they obviously put together a board and they get formulated as a charity. And even with the, with the way that they're set up, there's still a lot of scrutiny and a lot of accountability for the smaller charities to deal with. So if there are more you know, tax or more accountability asked, surely that's going to benefit the bigger charities that are already getting 90% of the funding. Right. So my, my question really is how do you address that inequality already in the way that foundations are set up without impacting on the smaller charities that are, are usually set up with people that are not necessarily wealthy. Mm-hmm. Good. Um, I want to make sure I understood one aspect of the question. So you're talking about the small charities and larger charities that are grant-making organizations themselves or recipients of charitable dollars? Um, so even if they were grant-making organizations, it's still that, that inequality where they're set up because they know the they know the way that their funds would be spent from a community grassroots level. So even if we were to use that example, again, my, my question is how would you advise charities from that aspect? Mm-hmm. Well, so, so insofar as I've pointed out things about the unaccountability of philanthropy, I've had in mind the, the donors, not, not the recipients. Um, ordinary charities tend to have a certain accountability um, both to their beneficiaries and, of course, to the, um, um, the fact that they need to generate revenue for themselves. So they're um, accountable to the donors in certain respects. Now, that might be itself perverse in certain cases, but there's a built-in accountability mechanism. Um, One of the perhaps um, surprising things um, that I came to in this book was thinking about big charity versus small charity, big donors versus small donors. The policy frameworks that I recommend should differ. Um, the pluralism-enhancing role of ordinary charitable giving and this discovery-seeking role of big philanthropy. And um, when it comes to the activity of discovery, of this social experimentation that happens outside of government, you need to have considerable resources to undertake that. So I actually came to a policy conclusion that there should be a floor on the size of creating a foundation rather than a ceiling. And that if you have only several hundred thousand pounds, dollars, then just start making charitable donations out of your back pocket rather than taking advantage of a foundation form which will never give you enough revenue to actually undertake this long time horizon experimentation that I think is the distinctive work of a foundation. Okay, we're at that point in the evening where the number of hands up exceeds the number of minutes. So what I'm going to suggest is that we have a very, very, very rapid wrap-up of your questions. So all of those with hands up, I'm afraid this puts a bit of a burden on the people with the microphone. Give us a one-sentence question. I will note them. I will ask Rob if he can answer them, as it were, in wholesale wholesale form. Um, So start uh, one. Yes, can you give us a a quick history of how these tax uh, subsidies or schemes were developed? I mean... Yes, uh, yeah. Could you please talk about the role that the government is playing in actually facilitating and growing the philanthropic space Mm -hmm. by asking them to fill specific gaps? Right behind you. 
Hi, uh, I'm Valentina Yami from uh, the LSE. I'm a PhD student. My question is brief. Did you encounter any successful example of participation, democratic participation within a philanthropic journey? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, hi, I'm Sanat. Uh, do you think philanthropy, precisely because of its characteristic, can overcome the short-termness that comes with democracy? I know you said in terms of innovation, but even in terms of long-term uh, work, such as in alternative forms of media where there is no short-term interest even, or encountering something that's not uh, driven by identity politics, for instance. Okay. Yeah, um, I just wondered, it increasingly seems like a lot of efforts to achieve social change aren't being delivered through traditional philanthropic means, so the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, for instance, isn't a, a traditional foundation, right. and increasingly there's new tech structures and this sort of thing trying to achieve the same ends. Do you worry that that might present new challenges for the sort of policy prescriptions that you're trying to come up with? Yep. Right behind you. Hi. In the context of the U.S., where there is great concern about a white supremacist president, should progressive foundations be more active in advocacy and policy towards defeating that president, or does that simply kick the can down the line mm -hmm. of further democratic erosion with elites and plutocrats being more involved? Okay. That, that is a bunch of questions. I think there's one person still with their hand up. Um, I will run through them, and you can okay. pick them off uh, I, as I you wish. Them. I think I got them, yeah. Um, considering the current state of events and like government policy, if I was a billionaire, like what would be the most just thing to do with my money? Mm -hmm. Good question. Thank you. You got them? Okay, I have them. Tax subsidies, tax advantages. They came about in the U.S. Uh, with the advent of the imposition of personal income taxation, which was 1917 to fund the war effort. So all philanthropy, all charitable giving that happened prior to 1917 was untax subsidized. Um, in other words, the Tocquevillian nation of joiners that Americans were alleged to be flourished just fine without the lavish tax benefits that attached to philanthropy. Um, how can government grow a philanthropic space? Well, I think the answer to that partly has to do with the ways the policies work, the ways that um, it, it attends the different places. But I'll note here that what's important is that where government falls short, there are sometimes in times of budget crisis in particular, fiscal austerity, one of the great philanthropic success stories that everyone appropriately points to is the stimulation of public libraries by Andrew Carnegie, who did not say that through his own philanthropic assets he would fund libraries in every town and city for everyone in perpetuity. He presented these philanthropic innovations and experiments, partly privately funded, which were then passed on to public governance structures because people found them to be quite important. And in times of budget crisis in California and other places, there's occasionally an effort made by government to say, you know what, we don't have enough money to fund the public libraries. Dear philanthropists, would you take over responsibility for funding the library system? That is the opposite trajectory that philanthropy is meant to take, to take on board what were public responsibilities and thereby have this potentially crowding out effect of leaving less incentive for any future legislator to restore the public funding of public libraries. So that's a cautionary warning there. Democratic participation in philanthropy. 
Um, there's a bunch of stuff written about giving circles, various mechanisms of community foundations that can, in fact, stimulate more participation in philanthropy. But there's a certain spirit, apropos the question um, uh, asked by the gentleman in the back who just came from the foundation meeting today, that it's ex- important for philanthropy to have a certain degree of unaccountability to allow for these million-like experiments. The idiosyncratic preferences of each of us, one by one, can help overcome certain forms of majoritarian rule, um, fund minority and eccentric preferences, and democratic participation across the board in every charitable gift would be, for that reason, a mistake. Short-termism. Well, one of the conditions of public benefits, it seems to me, ought to be that one has... And in a philanthropic entity, a long time horizon impact statement, for example. Spell out how it is that you're expecting to see results or stimulate some innovation or change or what your experiment is over a five-year, 10-year, 20-year horizon. If you expect results from your grantees in three months, you don't need to have the foundation form. Just write a check out of your back pocket and call them again in three months. Um, the distinctive privilege of being unaccountable, relatively speaking, in a foundation is take these long time horizons. Um, incidentally, I'll just flag this for those of you in the audience, when I occasionally show up in an audience of only people who work in foundations, and where I might otherwise begin, as I did tonight, with the story about Rockefeller and the plutocratic voice that philanthropy represents, putting, I'm guessing, my audience either in an irritable or defensive mood, um, I sometimes begin instead by saying, I want to talk about a certain type of institutional privilege that I possess that my guess is many of you think is completely ridiculous. I have tenure. I have job unaccountable performance for life. And my guess is most people think that being wholly unaccountable as a tenured professor is a ludicrous institutional design. And if there's any defense for it, It's to allow scholars to take long-time horizon bets with their research and experimentation that might be truth-producing, knowledge-producing, et cetera, et cetera, that are unlikely to come from the marketplace or the government. And if all we do is small, little incremental additions to knowledge, then put us on five-year renewable contracts and nothing about our outputs changed. Notice, however, the analogy only goes so far between the endowments that are unaccountable and the brain that is tenured. And... I die, so I don't exist in perpetuity, and I had to earn tenure, as it were, whereas philanthropists earn their status as a philanthropist merely through their success in the marketplace. The merely there could be eliminated. (laughs) Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Absolutely right. The book ends with uh, an examination of these new types of philanthropic entities CZI, like many other Silicon Valley philanthropists, are choosing to forego the private foundation form and instead to assume an LLC, limited liability company, um, operating form, which allows them to make ordinary grants, to make investments in for-profit companies. In the Chan Zuckerberg case, it's personalized learning education initiatives, which are ordinary startups in Silicon Valley trying to find ways of online and personalized learning. And, really importantly, political advocacy, and indeed electioneering, all under the same roof, coordinated and strategized together with virtually no transparency. That seems to me problematic. Although, if you were to tell an exceptionally wealthy person, here's an idea for you. Let's give you a staff that's professional that will be able to 
press whatever lever is maximally useful to bring about your preferred policy end, grant-making to a nonprofit, political advocacy to, to groups, seed investments in for-profit companies, and electioneering for your preferred candidates in a post-Citizen United world with no transparency? Sounds pretty good, but not especially democratic. Um, philanthropy and white supremacy in the United States. I think it would be a mistake for private foundations to engage in direct efforts using language like you described because I don't think political giving deserves the description philanthropic giving. There may be a good case to be made on behalf of wealthy people to confront the political power that exists in the U.S. now, but it should not happen under the description of philanthropy. And finally, what should I do with a billion dollars? What should you do with a billion dollars, if that was the question? Um, I've never had to confront that personally. don't anticipate having to do so either. And, um, you know, maybe in a gesture to my friend from the Gates Foundation here, I think you might begin by examining some of what they do because they have a good track record to bring about some, some good in the world. I'd begin with this literature on effective altruism, which tries to attach an evidentiary base to some of what's um, going on philanthropically, even though I think the orientation to that work ought to be, again, scrutiny rather than gratitude. And, um, you know, in our conversations before, I should turn the floor over to you here. You described having um, worked within various philanthropic entities and discovered that it is indeed hard to give away a billion dollars or a million dollars or pick a number. And so perhaps you have some experience in which to give a better answer to the question than I do. Um, well, I have some experience, and the answer is the same. It's hard. Um, but we come to the end of a really fascinating session, and it's my job um, to make sure we leave on time. It's my daughter's 18th birthday, so I will be in big trouble if we don't leave on time. Um, to try to draw together some of the threads. And the things that I've heard from you, Rob, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a category of word that you use, which, all of which are, are kind of communitarian or collectivist or associative. And it seems that you have a strong desire to, as it were, return agency for improving the state of the world from, um, to coin a phrase, from the few to the many, um, if I've understood that correctly. Um, I was very struck by your notion that we should, be, we should legitimize, not maximize. That you know, if there's a kind of slogan that I associate with what I'm learning from you, it's legitimize, not maximize. Um, you used the word humility. You used the notion of philanthropy as a kind of perpetual auditioning, um, which I like very much. Um, uh, more technically, uh, I was very struck by the notion that tax is the counterfactual. Mm -hmm. You need always to compare the the fractional benefit of the tax foregone to the impact of the philanthropic um, donation made. Um, and particularly for the LSE community, who I know are invested in this idea of, of experimentation and counterfactuals, I thought that was, that was um, uh, really interesting. Um, I like, too, very much the notion that there are some things that are contestable, even without um, changing the the governing structures of this. So, for example, naming rights being within or without mm -hmm. um, uh, agreements doesn't require the system to change. It requires agency or negotiating power to be differently distributed. So, I, I, I'm, uh, And there are many other things that, 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 I, that I 
that I haven't um, that I haven't tried to summarise. Um, though I also like though it's you know it's it, it's better to um, you know, it's better um, biting the hand that feeds you than feeding the hand that bites you, um, <laughs> uh, which is another description of, of of what we're all trying to do here. So finally, um, some thank yous. And thank you to my colleagues at the Marshall Institute and LSE for allowing us to be here. Thank you for, for, to the people in red um, who have done sterling microphone um, service. Thank you, of course, to you for, you uh, for coming me. to the LSE and giving us this fascinating uh, conversation. And thank you to you for giving up a Tuesday evening, Wednesday evening. What are we on? Wednesday. Wednesday evening. <laughs> Um, and for asking such uh, great questions. Thank you all very much.